0: Good morning, everybody. Ooh. Boy, that's bright and fresh, isn't it? It's good to see you this morning. I'm so happy that you are here. We're going to have a great church service today. And, and I don't know what you've been going through this week or what you got coming up next week, but God is your answer, that's for sure. And I don't want to just say that as sort of a cliche. He really is. He really is. So glad that you're in the house of the Lord this morning. I want to read from the word. Actually, I'm going to read my text to you that I'm speaking from uh, this morning. And so, would you stand with me? I'm going to be reading from Psalm 33, beginning in verse number 10. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Bible says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people of his cho- he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks on all of the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually, he considers all of their works, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its own great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, he is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let the mercy of the Lord be upon us, just as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord right here, it's his Bible, it's his word that speaks into our lives. And the thing about the word of God today is that it is just as fresh and relevant and meaningful as it was when it was first written. It touches our lives. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the amazing grace of God that speaks and works and does good things in our lives. Father, I pray that we would open our hearts and open our lives unto you this morning in special, unique ways. Father, I pray that you would cause, that you would create within our our hearts a, a soul hunger for more of you and to declare the blessing and the greatness of God. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus this morning for those that have faced extreme difficulties this week. Father, as we look back over that week, I pray that you would help us to see that you are involved, that you are at work, and that it is you who gives us strength, who guides us, who comes alongside our lives to bring to us comfort. Father, I pray as we look ahead, I pray that we would understand that you have already been there, that tomorrow is history to you, and we thank you. We thank you that we can give ourselves to you. We can walk with you. We can claim you as our very own. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. You are the Redeemer. You are the one who restores in our lives. And so we thank you today, all in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. Amen. Back to Psalm 33. Just the one verse I want to reread to you this morning. Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. I had designed this message to speak last Sunday, and then we basically kind of, sort of a few days before that, deferred to Earl, who shared the word with you last Sunday, and he did a good job, didn't he? He did. Good job. And our clipboards came on Monday. Can you believe that? I I know that, uh, I I told Earl, I said, we're handing out clipboards uh, so we can adjudicate this message. And unfortunately, the clipboards didn't show up until Monday, and so we're unable to do that. So we need to make another way for you to do this so we can really take a, you know, you're not gonna be here that much longer, probably another month or so. So we need to get in our shot. (laughs) So Anyway. During the last presidential campaign, now President Donald Trump had a four-word saying that seemed to be somewhat at the heart of his campaign, in which he constantly said over and over, make America great again. I'm gonna borrow that and just rearrange one word on it. And I think this morning, I want, us to, sugge- I want to suggest to you and encourage you to make America good again. America will never be great until America decides to be good. And that seems to be a long ways off on many days. Probably about four or five years ago, I remember it pretty well. It was a sunny morning, it was late May, Joan and I were driving in Massachusetts near the uh, coast and we turned off the uh, interstate to travel into Plymouth, Massachusetts and we wanted to see Plymouth Rock uh, that was overlooking Cape Cod Bay. Uh, I tried to imagine, I stood there uh, at that place and And I I have to tell you, and I just, maybe you've been there, some of you have been there, why you'll you'll certainly resonate with what I'm saying. Uh, Plymouth Rock isn't terribly impressive. You know, I thought Plymouth Rock was some massive boulder about the size of this building. And actually, it's a small rock that one decent guy could probably pick up and cart off. I'm surprised somebody hasn't stolen it by now. But um, nevertheless, that didn't matter so much to me. And I stood there and I looked out over Cape Cod Bay. And I tried, to, I tried to get it into my mind what it must have been like on a similar day in 1620 when that small group of pilgrims and the boat they were on, the Mayflower, touched the shore and they walked off that boat and took the first steps in a brand new land that would one day be called America. I tried to just sorta, of tried to capture a bit of that in my mind. And as we stood there, and we were looking, Plymouth Rock, the Bay, off to our left was a life-size replica of the Mayflower that was permanently uh, moored at a, uh, at a special, uh, special dock, and everything for that site. It was a very difficult, a very stressful, a very dangerous journey from England to America. This was not an easy trip. Many of the pilgrims had died on that trip. Many had become sick and virtually all of them were hungry. It was a perilous journey to say the least. And these brave people (coughs) sailed to America for one purpose, and prior to them getting off the ship, while it was still in Cape Cod Harbor, or Cape Cod Bay, they gathered together the leaders on that ship and signed, each one of them signed, what is called the Mayflower Compact. And the conclusion of that Mayflower Compact are these words. To the glory of God and to the advancement of the Christian faith. And they established the commonwealth on those words. That's why they came. It's interesting today, it's interesting for me and perhaps others. We're living in a day of what I call revisionist history. We like to revise history, to perhaps make it fit in some way a a political leaning, a a desire or a design that somehow we have in our own mind, our heart. The Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth Rock is one of those moments that has not escaped the revisionists. It is said of these Pilgrims, they came because of a a quote, and I quote this out out of a history book impelling curiosity now i will tell you this george carver and james brad or william bradford would never agree to that these people left their homes their surroundings their security in england to travel across the north atlantic in small wooden boats and they did so for the advancement of the Christian faith, not just because they were curious. Fast forward nearly 200 and some years. On April 15th, 1912, more than 1,500 people were lost when Titanic sank in the North Atlantic Ocean in a traffic lane that was very similar to the Mayflower. The ship had been declared unsinkable and yet it sunk on its maiden voyage. And we we have looked at this, we have studied this, it has been studied endlessly. Movies have been made of it. Research, scientific research has been done and well documented and who made the decisions and why were these decisions made and all of these things. And we ask the question, and we keep asking it, what caused this to happen? And is this, as we studied this? I'm using the Titanic as, an, as, a, as a metaphor here with the sinking of the Titanic and what is happening in America today. There are some things, some trends, that have caused us to think and take action. There is an all-out assault on traditional values a rejection of time-honored standards of decency and virtue. There is violence on the streets and in our schools and a never-ending, never-ceasing, ratcheting-up demand for my rights and my entitlements. So when did we hit the iceberg? We have banished God from the public square, but we don't know who or what to put in his place. And that's a truth right there. We've relaxed Christian morality and hurried after that which is immoral and which clearly will be judged by God. We have seen entire Christian denominations follow this pathway to their demise, every one of them. And we see them stumbling and crumbling and falling to pieces. At the very least, the foundations of our nation are cracked and frayed, and there's a moral vacuum that's taking a heavy toll on families. About 10 days ago, I listened to comments by Senator Bernie Sanders, who was in a committee meeting room in a uh, Senate confirmation hearing of a man named Russell Vought wanted to be the deputy director of the white house office of budget and management i listened to his comments and this was what was shocking about this he at the end he said this man is unfit this man is unsuitable because of his christian beliefs i'm telling you folks there is a senator that stepped over the first amendment line I just wish I was in the U.S. Senate, I would have called for a censure vote on that senator. President Theodore Roosevelt declared this, he said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and intertwined in our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what life would be if these teachings were removed. Well, let me tell you, Mr. Roosevelt we're moving in that direction and we have cleared them out and we're doing it as fast as we can. Of removing these teachings, of removing these values and removing these things from our lives. The Lindy and the Harry Bradley Foundation made a detailed study of our country and where we have been and where we have headed. And here's a part of their final statement and their summation of that entire study, I quote to you. It says, America is facing an identity crisis. The next generation of Americans will know less than their parents know about history and the founding ideals. Many people are more familiar with what divides us than what unites us. You see, the thing about America is this, and I think think there are some people that understand this. America isn't like any other country in the world. America is an idea. It's an idea. It's not just a set of people. It's not just a set of commerce. It's not just a form of government or anything. It is an idea. And it must be learned by every generation. And it constantly must be learned. The death and the destruction that happened during the reign of the Nazis in World War II and the killing fields of Cambodia were both a result of people being enslaved. And before you can enslave people, you have to get rid of, you have to neutralize the highly educated, the professionals, the teachers, the ministers, and anybody else who would dare stand in the way of that ideology. They have to be eliminated, and that's exactly what happened. Ronald Reagan said in his farewell address to the American people, if we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. He went on to say, I am warning of the eradication of the American memory that could ultimately result in the erosion of the American spirit. Interesting. Prophetic. Harvard University was founded in 1636, it was the first university or college founded in the New World, just 16 years after the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. First to organize, its motto was simple, I I can't hardly believe this folks, but their motto was this, truth for Christ and for the church. Can you believe that? Harvard basically was organized to produce people who could be ministers and missionaries who could rightly divide the word of truth to the nation. How far we have traveled. The ivy that now covers the walls and the buildings of Harvard and Yale and Princeton and others have also covered to Christ, truth for Christ and for his church. This is a little bit of history today, huh? Well, it's been a long time since some of you have been in high school. i got to be honest with you, I learned this in junior high school. I mean middle school. Thanks, Charles. You know, in a relatively short period of time, Princeton University had gone through four presidents. Now, as I can understand that, and the search for a fifth president was underway, and they brought in a Scottish preacher, a pastor named John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was an incredibly godly man who looked to God, who felt that it was, it was the, it was the responsibility that he had the responsibility given to him by God to help develop faith in people's lives he was a godly man in the fourth year of his administration a powerful revival broke out all over that campus people began praying people were gathering for Bible studies Sometimes classes were suspended because of the move and work of the Holy Spirit at Princeton. Under his leadership, under the leadership of uh, Witherspoon, Princeton University produced one president, two vice presidents, 10 members of president's cabinet, 12 senators, 29 members of the House of Representatives, three justices of the Supreme Court, 12 state governors, nine of the 56 founding members were signers of the Declaration of Independence. Not a bad record for a college president. One of those persons that was profoundly influenced by Witherspoon was a young man, 35 years old, his name was James Madison. Madison was incredibly influenced influenced by God. And what God was doing in his life. It was James Madison at the age of 35 who joined the delegates at the first constitutional convention in Philadelphia in 1787. And the delegates labored from May to September to do something that had never been done before. And that was to merge 13 separate states into one federal government. Nobody had ever done that. But they were laboring to do so. At midsummer, the group had reached an impasse. And as the temperatures rose, so did the tempers. And they continued to climb. And at one point in late June, Benjamin Franklin rose to remind the people of this. And I'll put these words on the screen. At the beginning of our contest with Britain, we were in danger. We had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard and graciously answered. And now, have we forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? I therefore move that prayers employing the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning. The motion was immediately seconded. And deliberations were suspended for three days as the delegates fasted and prayed. And you know what? When I was preparing these notes, I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder what would happen at 435 members of the House of Representatives and 100 senators would say we're suspending everything in this government for three days so that we can fast and pray and ask God to help us with the critical deliberations that are so important to our nation. I know that may be a dream. I know that may be just the pie in the sky type of a thing, but you know what? It worked once. Because after three days, they returned on July 2nd. The contention had been replaced by friendship. The deadlock was broken, and they went on to immediately write the first draft of the Constitution of the United States. That's pretty amazing. I started this message with two questions. First question, what caused this to happen? And the second question, when did we hit the iceberg? I'm very convinced America is at a critical crossroads and we are now headed in the wrong direction. Did we collide with the iceberg and didn't even know it? I think that might be possible. I, for one, do not believe America's future is guaranteed. I do not believe that. And I'll tell you why. Nations die. The landscape of history is cluttered with the rubble of many civilizations that rose, they flourished for a while, they lingered on, they faded and they disappeared. The Egyptians were here for a while. They ruled the world. They faded. The Babylonians came along. They faded. Medo-Persia took over. They faded. The Greeks took over. They faded. The Romans took over. They faded. And we went plunging into the Dark Ages, basically. The Portuguese and the Spanish rose for a moment because of their great prowess and exploration, and they faded. The British Empire, where the sun never sets, has faded. And they did so because they forgot God. There are no guarantees, but there is one thing for certain folks. When you leave God out, you also push aside his desire to bless and open up the land for his curse and judgment. Now let me get real personal. You leave God out of your personal life. You leave Jesus Christ and set him aside and you open yourself up to his, the judgment of God. You open yourself up to the curse of God in your life. And there are people today that do this. Perhaps there are people sitting in here right now and you know exactly what you need to do. You've heard me say it. This isn't the first time you've walked in this church. And yet you continue to refuse. You continue to refuse to submit yourself unto God. Now I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why. It's because of pride. I can do it my way. And that's why we're in trouble today. A prideful spirit... It's going to lead to destruction. Open your heart to Christ. For heaven's sakes. You can see the outline of history itself. You see what God has given us in his word. Put those two things together and you can find the answers to your own life. Allow God to govern your life. And the only way that can possibly happen in your life Is through a personal relationship with Christ. I'm not talking about pray a little prayer at the end of the service and I'm okay. That isn't going to cut it for anybody. We're talking about repenting of sin. And you've heard me talk this before. We repent of sin. In other words, we turn our back on sin and we go in the direction of God. And we acknowledge Christ as our Lord and Savior. We receive him. We respond to him in our heart. He is the Lord. Not just somebody that we pick up on Sundays. He is the Lord of our life. He governs our lives. This is when things would turn around in your heart. Turn around in your life. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Daniel Johnson is a friend of mine. Daniel, I've known him for several years. He's quite a bit older than I am, but still very active in ministry. Uh, An extraordinarily fine preacher. He is an author, and I'm indebted for Dan- to Daniel, <clears throat> he wrote this, and I asked him, I said, I'd like to borrow it for a message. And he writes this way, We are a nation conceived in liberty, not an accident of history. We know who we are and why we're here. We built a city upon a hill. We poured tea in Boston Harbor. We took a midnight ride with Paul Revere and fired the shot heard round the world. We fought at Lexington and Concord to be free, and Antietam, Bunker Hill and Fort Sumter to save the Union. We shed blood on the sands of Iwo Jima, in the jungles of Guadalcanal. We scaled the cliffs with grappling hooks. We waded the rice fields of the Mekong Delta. We fought our way to Yang. We are Washington praying at Valley Forge. We are Patrick Henry, if this be treason. We are Nathan Hale with one life to lose for my country. We are William Lloyd Garrison, writing in an anti-slavery newspaper, saying I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will not retreat a single inch, but I will be heard. We are Robert Frost, who took the road less traveled. We are Neil Armstrong, with the one small step for mankind. We are Billy Graham, the Bible says. We are Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We are the mothers and fathers, the boys and girls and artists and craftsmen. We are doctors and lawyers and teachers and statesmen, preachers and farmers. We are the airline pilots and the bus drivers, the accountants, nurses, firemen, and legislators. We survived the Boston Massacre, the Civil War, two world wars, the Great Depression, the madness of the 60s, some bad politicians, 9-11, and we're not going anywhere. We are entombed at a watery grave at Pearl Harbor. We are buried in Flanders Field also in Arlington and at Gettysburg. We are the unknown soldier, but known to God. We lie beneath small crosses in a thousand cemeteries where prayers are made and tears are shed and flowers are left on Memorial Day. We know who we are, we the people, one nation under God. Listen to me, friends. I want to close. There's no power anywhere that can oppose God. And if you're sitting in here today and saying, I can do it my way, I have my way, you are simply but a fool. I say that lovingly, but you are a fool. If you think you can oppose God, open your Bible up. It is filled with the names of people who said, I can oppose God. And God made them absolutely foolish. I think in Nebuchadnezzar, who said, I can oppose God. I can impose my own way. And God says, no, you're not. And he turned him to some kind of a nitwit animal that was grazing out in the field. You can rule against God from the bench of the Supreme Court. You can remove every vestige of the Ten Commandments from all of the properties of this land. You can pass laws that ridicule the law of God. You can rail against God from a Senate committee room. But you will never, never, never dethrone God. And everyone will eventually stand before him as the judge of all the universe. I'd like to ask our vocalist to come back to the platform, please. Would you do that right now? I want us to make sure that we are committed people who know him and are equally committed to reaching others for faith. At the age that I am right now, I enjoy being a pastor. I love being a pastor. But I also love seeing people one for Christ. I want to see the church's influence reach families, whether it's right here in our neighborhood or in some other neighborhood, wherever that might be, whatever area that might take us, I want to see them one for Christ. Amen? Would you stand? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, we thank you so much for loving us. Father, we do believe that you still love America and you love your church. But Father, I pray today Let this be a day and let this be a moment in which we make the necessary adjustments, not only nationally, but within our church and within our personal lives, that we will follow Christ, and that we will follow him without fail. Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus for people in this room, people that may need to really honestly, thoroughly, simply say, I need Christ in my life, and I need to repent. I need to turn away from the life I'm living. I need to repent. Father, I pray for somebody today to make that all important, incredibly important decision. And then ask them to pray Jesus Christ, come into my life and my heart. I believe totally on you and you alone for my salvation. I believe you died for me and I believe you rose from the dead. And I ask you to be the Savior and Lord of my life. Father, help me not to just pay lip service to this simple little prayer, but to really engage it, engage it by repentance, engage it by faithfulness in my walk. Engage it by truly desiring to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and truly desiring to know the ways of God for my life. No more lip service. No more head fakes or anything like that. But real disciples. Real people walking with God. Serving God. Loving God and loving one another. So Father, make this real in our lives today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Right, can you give me one more minute? I hope you can. There's a question, I, I just sorta, of, after I finished this uh, message, and I, and I think I, I needed the time that Earl gave me, because I was unsatisfied with clothes. Because there was still a question in my head, how do you walk in victory? I never said anything about that. I want us to hear, we are children of the light. We are children of the day. That's who we are. That's what we are. I think we must guard against allowing the world to squeeze us into into its mold. And I'm telling you what, that's an every day, every minute action. If you let your guard down, I think on one day, that squeeze, that pressure is there. We must refuse, listen to me carefully, refuse to walk in despair and spiritual emptiness. We are people that are filled with God. I have a hope, I have a future. not going to walk around in despair. I'm going to walk around with the glory of God throbbing in my heart and reverberating through my life. How do we do this? It's real simple. We just simply look unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Faith will always include a fight. Let me tell you something. Anytime you take one little tiny, infinitesimally small step of faith, it's going to, you may as well get your dukes up because it will involve a fight. Always. And it's our responsibility, saints of God, to shine the light of darkness in this world. Shine the light and never let the enemy steal your joy and your victory. Never, never. He may mess with you in a lot of different ways, but never let him take your victory. Never let him rob you of your joy that is in the Lord. Amen? Let's lift our hands. Father, may the Lord bless and keep every one of the saints of God this morning. Father, I pray especially this morning for people, I believe there's You know, Father, I believe there's a couple people this morning that really prayed that prayer, and they were earnest about it this time. They're not fooling. They meant it. Father, help them to walk a pathway of repentance and and discipleship and victory. Father, cause your face to shine into our lives and shine into our homes and into the workplaces that, that we are involved with. Father, I pray, may that light then effervesce into a community, into other people's lives. And may the brilliance of Christ constantly be lifted up. Give us joy and victory as we walk out of this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.